0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and, as you see, perfectly harmless looking, when in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. (laughs)
2: Is anything wrong?
0: Am I acting as if there's something wrong? Hey!
3: Your girlfriend stole $40,000. Where are you going? I'm looking for a private island. You mean an institution? A madhouse? There are plenty of motels in this area. She spent last Saturday night at the Bates Motel. We just keep on lighting the lights and following the formalities. It's the first place it looks like it's hiding from the world.
0: I'm sure there's something wrong out there, and I have to know what. My mother, uh, she
3: isn't c- quite herself today. Norman Bates's mother has been dead and buried in Green Lawn Cemetery for the past ten years.
0: I declare. Don't you touch me. Don't. Put me down. I
3: don't like you going to that house alone.
0: I can handle a sick old woman.
3: <gasps> it's not as if she were a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes.
4: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Christine Makepeace.
5: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me again.
4: On this episode, we are discussing Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film Psycho. The film stars Janet Leigh as Marion Crane, an unmarried woman who's in love with Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin, a man under the debt of his deceased father and living ex-wife. In a move of desperation, she sees an opportunity to change her circumstances and takes it in the form of $40,000. I don't know if it's safe to assume that everyone listening to this episode has seen Psycho, but I will say regardless that we're going to be spoiling the hell out of this movie, so be warned. Christine, when was the first time you saw Psycho, if you can remember, and what were your impressions?
5: I actually tried to remember, and I don't think I can because it's always been like ever-present. In my life, my mom was a big Hitchcock fan, so it was just this and the birds and Vertigo were just kind of always around. I probably didn't sit down and watch it from start to finish until I was in my late teens, and then I was like, oh, I get it. I get this movie. I get why people like this movie.
4: Yeah, it's kind of the same story for me. It's weird. I had different movies. I had Rope and The Trouble with Harry and Rear Window and this film – always on. But yeah, again, same thing until I took a Hitchcock class in college and sat down and watched it start to finish. I don't know if I had ever put it all in my head at the same time. And that was around the time that I started reading about films and looking at themes. And this movie is just lousy with themes. It is just amazing to, to look at the amount of writing that has gone on about this film and that's one of those things with this episode, is there probably have easily been a million words written about Psycho. So I'm not sure if we're going to be able to say anything new about the film, but maybe, who knows? We might strike some new ground here, but no pressure.
5: What am I going to say that some film scholar hasn't already mused about this movie? Probably not much.
4: I love the way that this movie begins, I love the flight through Phoenix. I love that we are taken into this hotel room, and it kind of ties to me. The way that we go into this hotel room kind of reminds me of The Fly at the end of the film. So the way that Hitchcock's films always work to me is whatever is happening in the beginning always speaks to what's at the end or vice versa. So it's almost as if we are that fly that's on Norman's hand at the beginning of the film flying into this room. And it's one of those weird things. Like, this movie, so much of it is about fate. And we'll talk about the Turkish version, which is also translated as, let's call it fate. But so much of this movie flying into this particular hotel room what would have happened if we flew into the room next door? But here we are having this tableau of this unmarried woman and this formerly married man. And it sets up this whole thing. And the way that Hitchcock plays with us from the very beginning of this movie is wonderful. And I'm going to be saying that word a lot throughout here because this film is so masterfully done.
5: It's beautiful. And for me, as I get older, um, what has really become kind of a sign of, of how classic I'm doing air quotes a, a film is for me is if I can watch it at different stages in my life and have it translate differently for me. So now watching this movie, I very much align myself with this older of the time, older, unmarried woman, her struggles with money. Like, there's just so many more relevant themes to me now. And there's a, there's like a nihilism that runs through this, this movie that I don't think I picked up on when I was in my 20s. And I can only see so that that didn't just get added. That's just me picking it up now. Even from the get-go, from the, that very first scene, you are painted a very beautifully detailed picture that I adult me really relates to and and the you know the Marion character is extremely likable from the jump and and for me, in a very personal way,
4: yeah, seeing this when we were in our late teens, early twenties, it probably didn't resonate with us when Marion says that she's almost thirty and she's unmarried, and just what kind of pressure was probably on her at the time, and then also the way that she probably feels that it's very unfair that this guy that she's fallen in love with already has had a wife and that this wife is basically ruining her chances to have this happiness that she's supposed to have.
5: Because obviously there's MacGuffins in this movie. The whole movie is, is a MacGuffin. But yeah, that's that those are themes and ideas and plot points that if you don't pick up, you can still enjoy this movie. But like yeah, it really informs all of her choices. Uh, which is which is interesting. So rewatching, I, I probably rewatch this movie once a year, once every other year. But this last time, I was like very affected by Marion's character, probably more so than I'd ever been, because yeah, she's dealing with some shit.
4: Well, and then Sam's dealing with stuff too, and I love his line about how he's tired of sweating for people who aren't there, and that's kind of one of those nice things. There are so many lines in here that have so many double and triple meanings as we're going through here. And him saying, I'm tired of sweating for people who aren't there is really nice because he's got a dead father and then this ex-wife and the dead father left him all of this debt that he's trying to pay off with his alimony to his ex-wife. Who's he says on the other side of the world, probably it sounds like he doesn't even know where she's at. He has these two missing figures in his life that he now owes all this money for. And then money eventually becomes, the solution to everything or at least that's how it seems
5: you know some things never change because that's that could very easily be said about most situations now it's unfortunately this thing that we need we have to have money and and it's it's almost against i know we don't really get much time with marion before she makes the choice to take this money that she will take but it's almost against character she must feel so backed up against the wall at that point for that to be the solution
4: and what's the deal with her taking lunch at two o'clock in the afternoon
5: that is one of my favorite scenes that scene has persisted with her and and pat hitchcock in that in that office in the pills and just how she just keeps going on and on and on i love that scene and I think I had read something somebody wrote on a blog once upon a time saying that that was like such a throwaway nothing. They could have set up the money easier. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's the best part of that whole area of the movie is, is them and they're just kind of chatting about nothing. And, and I want to see more of Marion's work day. Like, what is it like sitting next to Patricia Hitchcock all day?
4: <laughs> Hearing all about Teddy and her mother,
5: rambling on about tranquilizers. It's, it's just really charming. because, But then it gives you all this stuff, this setup for this Marion character to go and do this thing. It's conveying such desperation without actually taking all the time to give her the first half of the movie is set up as to why she would do
4: something and it's also giving you another missing mother. She's talking about her mother calling on the phone. Marion has talked about her mother and her mother's picture, and she's mentioned her sister, and then there's another mention of the sister here. Because it's very interesting that we don't have Lila Crane until the second half of the film, and then we really we get the one scene of Sam, and then we don't get him again in a corporeal form again until the second half of the film. So we have to have this stuff here to set up some of these things. Otherwise we won't know who the hell Vera Miles is when she shows up in the second half of it. And she could come in and say, yeah, I'm Marion's sister, but it's going to be like, whoa, where did this come from?
5: Yeah. Because you don't want to, I mean, you don't want to introduce these characters you've never heard of in the last half of your movie, because that's lazy and sloppy and all these things we get taught about writing out a script. You know, it is super important for us to Kind of forget about everybody else and 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 just willingly go on this journey with Marion because you know the switch is so jarring to who's the focus of the movie. It just they they front load it's front loaded so expertly. I don't know why I'm talking like I'm surprised. Of course it is. It's just front loaded so well with all these things so that when these characters show up or show back up, it's not you're not surprised. It's not like well who's this? Why didn't why didn't this come up sooner?
4: The scene with Cassidy, the Texas guy who comes in, I assume he's from Texas because he just seems that way. And the way he's wearing the cowboy hat and the way he's flashing that $40,000 and the way that he's flirting terribly with Marion is just, oh, it is painful to watch, especially in 2018, watching him just hit on her mercilessly. And just being such a friggin' blowhard about buying off on happiness and how he's buying his baby a house. And she's 18 years old. You shouldn't be calling your daughter a baby at 18 years old.
5: He's, he's really dislikable. And Marion has some really good reactions. She pulls some faces. It's not playing well with her either. She's kind. She's not rude. But she's definitely not playing into it at all, which I I, I've always really enjoyed. She's definitely as over it as she should be in the moment.
4: And I love Pat Hitchcock afterwards going, He was flirting with you. He must have noticed my wedding ring.
5: It's so genuinely funny still. Like it's a funny line. Like if you just transplanted that into a movie from two years ago, that could be a funny line. It's 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 a good observation. (laughs) I love Patricia Hitchcock every time she shows up, so I'll take what very little of her is in this movie.
4: Yeah, I kind of wish that she had had a little bit more. And she does get a little bit more dialogue, at least, with the what I'll call the plays, the radio plays that are going on inside of Marion's head as she's leaving. And I love that. And I love that that also ties in with Norman Bates, this character that we haven't really talked about at all that people might not be familiar with. But this other character where he is part of almost a radio play, because we are hearing all of these exchanges. We don't see them, and we can't see them, but this sets us up for those exchanges by having Marion driving this car and hearing what she thinks could be the reactions of people, which is really interesting that she is thinking these things, and it seems like they are 100% could be happening or will happen, and she's thinking about them in the future tense, which is really interesting, too. She's thinking about Monday morning. She's thinking about maybe Saturday night or whenever she shows up at Sam's place with this money, and I love that she is being able to project all those things, and then again, like I said, it kind of is presaging the way that we're going to have Norman and his mother and the way that they put on a show, just like how there's a show going on inside of Marion's head.
2: Yeah,
5: it's it's really effective because again it is that building this more and more of this character because sadly we have such a short time with her so it's really important that we as a viewer you know have enough time to align ourselves and i think by it, because she's not only just playing these scenarios through she's reacting to them like she's like oh i would feel sh- ashamed if this is how people were talking about me, I would be embarrassed. And it's, it's, it's very endearing. I've become a a big fan of, of Marion. She might be my favorite uh, Hitchcock character ever. She's just, just, she's really well done. And I think Janet Lee does a fantastic job um, making that character nuanced and and subtle in a really deliberate way.
4: Oh, I love that grin on her face when she's thinking of Cassidy and the, his reaction about, you know, how she was flirting with him.
5: It's really good because it's like this, it's this exposition that you don't actually have to have in real time. It's, again, it's really, really artfully and expertly done. Efficient, too. There's an efficiency to the, to the, I guess we can refer to them as the two halves of the movie. Because we don't, it's almost like we have a full narrative with both sets of characters. So you have to kind of just like, yes, keep it going, keep it going. We need to fit in as much as we can in, in a short period of time.
4: And it's not like we get a lot of subjective camera when it comes to Marion. I mean, we get some of that when she's behind the wheel, sees her boss cross the street, and then we get her reaction. So we get subjective camera when she's looking out the front window to see him and his reaction. We get subjective camera when she's driving and the way that – the rain is coming down on the windshield, subjective camera when she's looking in the rearview mirror and watching the cop behind her. But that's pretty much it. I'm probably going to get called on the carpet for that. But as far as I remember, that's about it. We don't get a lot of subjective shots when she's at California Charlie's looking at cars or, you know, maybe when she's looking at the cop's face, which is really scary when she gets waken up by a cop on the side of the road. And then that big close-up of him with those mirrored sunglasses is one of the scariest images because, like Hitchcock, I am absolutely petrified of police. So having that be what you wake up to, oh my God. Cops don't like me, so I don't like cops.
5: And, and then at that point, I, me personally, like, what, what, what did I do? Okay, is is he here about the money? How did that happen so fast? And the way that he he seems, the cop seems menacing in this really unexplained way. Like, I, I guess Marion's being jumpy, and he's following her, and they're just, it's, it's their reactions are kind of feeding into the paranoia of that situation. But then you're like, well, nothing's really even happening he doesn't know she has that money she's just acting weird and it's she's freaking herself out but yeah he's definitely menacing that cop
4: i can't stand when cops drive behind me and it just drives me crazy just i'm doing the same thing that she's doing looking in the rear view looking in the rear view and just like is this guy going to turn am i going to have to turn is he going to follow me you know just all of those things every single time even like you know last week that same thing happened i'm just like i Freaking can't stand when cops are behind me because it freaks me out.
5: Yeah, there is that actual like viewer relief when you can see him, I guess, take the exit and not be behind her anymore. And it's like, oh, good. That's done.
4: And then when he shows back up again across the street at California Charlie's, it's like, oh, for fuck's sake.
5: That whole car scene is really, I don't know if you find it as tense as I do, but she's in such a rush and she's so freaked out and everybody's reactions and like you look like you're trouble i think he says and you know the first customer of the day is always trouble I, but like it's those that d- double entendre double meaning stuff to all the lines and that that scene is like nail biting like just let her get the car and get out of there already
4: And I don't think it's any coincidence that she has to go into the ladies room to get the money out of her purse. You know, she doesn't obviously want to show that she's got 40 grand in her purse, but of all places to go into the ladies room because we're going to get bathrooms so important in this movie. And that seems to be such a great place for her to do that. And that's also where we get one of our first God's eye views of her again, kind of putting her under the spotlight and this weird Angle, But again, we're setting us up for getting more of those weird angles, which will actually be very well utilized in the rest of the film to kind of obfuscate some stuff that we shouldn't be seeing. And here he's introducing that early to get us used to that idea.
5: It definitely um, sets a nice table for what's coming up, even if you're not really consciously aware of it. There are are things happening that kind of ease you into it.
4: Well, yeah, if you watch this movie and just watch mirrors, you will be endlessly entertained because there are mirrors everywhere and especially seeing the doubling of Janet Lee's character so often, and you know, we can talk about the mirrored sunglasses that the guy has and whether they cast a reflection or not, the mirror from the car and all this stuff. There are mirrors with that, but most of the time when we see mirrors, we see her split into two images. We see that a lot in that hotel room at the beginning. We see that Here, when she's in the ladies' room, we're going to see that a ton when she gets to the base motel, and even inside of her cabin, we're just going to see her split so often. And I think that, you know, Hitchcock says that he shot this in black and white to help cover the gore and keep the cost down, those kind of things. But I think also having that stark black and white for this, I mean, we didn't talk about her wearing a white bronze slip at the beginning and then switching to black bronze slip when she's made the, the decision to steal the money. But I think the black and white is a very deliberate choice to show the duality of these characters.
5: I tend to agree, and I don't know what I was watching or reading to get prepared for this, but. I've noticed in my own Hitchcock experiences that he really does seem to downplay things, and he said something about like what you just said about why it was black and white, and it, to him it was he presented it in a very throwaway. Well, yeah, this is why, but that I feel like that's really shortchanging what what it adds to this m- movie. It's not just because you didn't want bright red, bright red blood swirling down a drain; it it does it, it makes things. More, I feel like it heightens tension and paranoia, and it makes things be very two-sided. And this movie is about, you know, yeah, duality. Two things are going to happen. We have it, not just in the story, but with within characters as well. So to just be like, yeah, I just made it black and white because of that. I I was just struck by like, stop downplaying it, man. Like it was a great choice.
4: He had already started to really work, because when it comes to his color movies, most of the time, or at least the ones that I think of, when he uses color, he's using almost garish color. You know, things like, um, uh, well, Rear Window isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. that garish, but he really uses color very effectively in things like Vertigo. And I think about the red room at the club where he sees Madeline the first time, the green light, all those kind of things. Really kicking up the color. I guess The Man Who Knew Too Much was also a very, very colorful film. But then right after The Man Who Knew Too Much, the remake, he does The Wrong Man, where he does a 180 degrees difference and makes it almost the cinema verite slash film noir kind of a look to it and really makes it super stark. He's doing the same thing again four years later with Psycho after he would just done North by Northwest. And yeah, it might keep the cost down, but I think there's really something to be said of what black and white brings to this rather than using color. I mean, we get to see this story done again in color, and we see that color doesn't necessarily work.
5: Uh, oh, boy. No, it doesn't.
4: Yeah, the California Charlie scene is interesting, too, because we also get, again, that radio play going on after she leaves him. I'm going to be accused of reading way too much into this movie as we're doing this. You know, I was talking about fate before, and I don't think there's any coincidence when she picks out a car with the license plate, because we are always seeing license plates in this movie, and the license plate is, what, NFB something or other. And I'm just like, okay, we are already getting introduced to Norman Bates through this license plate.
5: You know, I've never actually realized that or noticed that. I will say that that is very interesting. And I don't I don't think you're reading too much into it.
4: Well, that's the thing with Hitchcock, is that there are a lot of times where I'm like, I don't think you can read too much into it. I think either this stuff is intentional, or he would just go along and say, like, yeah, yeah, I meant that.
5: Yeah, and that's why it's. It, I find it so striking when he is really dismissive about, well, well, all these interesting choices for picking black and white. Oh, no, it was cheaper. And I think that that is intentional. And I, I don't, I mean... People have a lot of varying opinions on that man, uh, as do I. I. It's something I struggle with. Maybe not the best dude, but some of my favorite movies ever made. So you kind of have to balance that. But I think there is something in his attitude where maybe, yeah, that's of course that's what I'm doing. I don't want to talk to you about it though. So it was just cheaper, and I kind of like that. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't. Yeah, fine. Whatever you think is right is probably right, but we're not going to discuss that. It's very dismissive. I like it.
4: Well, one of my favorite filmmakers of all times will never tell you what was in his head when he was doing things. And that's David Lynch. He's going to start talking to you about a duck and an eye and all this kind of stuff rather than tell you what he was trying to bring across in this stuff. And I think Hitchcock is very much the same way. Just kind of leave it up to you. And he'll talk about the craft of suspense and he'll talk about that till he's blue in the face. You know, just ask Francois Truffaut, but he won't necessarily own up to all of the little things that he's putting in there and and yeah to your point as well he is a very troublesome auteur so it is it still kind of is bothersome thinking about some of that kind of stuff but you know we kind of eventually next year you know i'm gonna do an episode on rosemary's baby last year i did an an episode on the tenant we still have to talk about films by people who are troublesome but we also need to bring that up i think
5: no I completely agree and that's kind of how I've rectified it for myself not to get too off topic but there are current like working filmmakers that I will just or, or actors that I'll just be like no nah, I'm not I'm not gonna see that that's fine but they're still here and alive to like change how they're acting like I can't be like I for me personally I can't say I'll never watch a Hitchcock movie again because he was problematic in a time period where a lot of people, we're, we're acknowledging that it was even problematic, but he, cause he's dead. He can't fix it. He can't, he can't make amends for it. So I just have to, yeah, you just have to say like, look, wasn't the best dude, but also look at these effing movies. They're so great.
4: And sometimes I think maybe the weirdness might've lent itself to some of the, some of the things that he did wrong, but then also the way that his mind work was able to get to where we're at with some of this, brilliant stuff that ended up on screen. I mean, the whole idea of the rain and the way that the wipers are coming down and the rain is like the shower and the wipers are like the knives coming down. I mean, it's really, again, we're just getting all of these bits of foreshadowing before we get the climax of this whole first half of the film.
5: You can't even really say it's a simple story. It kind of is a simple story, but there's nothing simple about this movie or this plot. It, it is so layered. And you can keep watching it over and notice new things. I think this last time I noticed, I can't remember what it was, but there was some line and it had a double meaning. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. He's still even now, like after the 14th time I've seen this movie, I'm seeing something new. And I, I think that that is just that dedication to the story and to the craft, like everything in it is so deliberate. and And that's really exciting as a viewer.
4: I brought up fate a couple times now with the uh going into the one hotel room, you know, the license plate. The other thing that really gets me now watching this is that she's only 15 miles from her destination when she ends up stopping at the Bates motel. And it's like, it always reminds me of that stupid uh, Edmund Fitzgerald. You know, they would have made Whitefish Bay if they'd put 15 more miles behind them. But she doesn't go that last little bit and that ends up sealing her fate
5: and the cop when she has that run in with the cop plenty of hotels or whatever he says motels off the side of, like he's planting that seed that maybe maybe she thought of when it started raining you know real bad oh i should pull over i don't want a cop to come and see me on the side of the road or something this fate and this this lack of power to me that then, that then translates to like the nihilism like it didn't matter <laughs> this was going to happen it was already the wheels were already turning um, which is sad. It's it's really sad too because you 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 grow very fond of this character.
4: Yeah, we're going to talk later about a movie that just takes apart the shower sequence, but this whole thing of once she arrives at the Bates Motel until the sinking of her car in the swamp, I have read so many articles over the last few weeks and so many close readings of just this section of the film. And there's a good reason for that because it is so rich. This is like this amazing vein of gold and you can just continuously dig out more and more and more. And even just looking at like the dialogue scene between her and Norman in the parlor and the way that the camera angles will change as we're going through here, that it wasn't just, you know, two set setups. It wasn't just a shot reverse shot that we are getting these changes of the angles as we're going through here and the way that the dialogue between Marion and Norman, it's like this dance that they're doing. And I just absolutely love it. Like her having her agenda, her thinking about the trap that she's stepped into and the way that she's using Norman almost as a sounding board at times. And the way that he's helping to convince her that she needs to go back to Phoenix and rectify the situation. There's that level going on. There's Norman and what we find out his problems are, but not knowing what his problems are and hearing his side of it, not knowing who he is, what he is, you know, and then later on watching this a second, third, 14th time, knowing more of that kind of stuff and then getting more out of that conversation, but the way he'll like introduce something and she'll contradict him and then he'll walk it back, saying things like, Oh, I don't mind the trap that I'm in. Oh, well, you really should. Well, I do, but I say that I don't. Like those kind of exchanges are just fantastic. It's like this almost like a fencing match between the two of them. And he's moving back and then he'll come out with another thrust. And the way that he will go a little bit overboard when she starts talking about putting his mother someplace, how he gets really angry at that. It's such a great moment of him that we're kind of peeling back those layers and seeing what the real Norman might be and also getting a little bit of insight into his past. The way that he talks about a madhouse sounds like he's got first-hand experience with
0: it. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace?
3: You mean an institution? A madhouse? People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace.
0: I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring.
3: What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears, and the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there, but she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of
0: those stuffed birds. I am sorry. I I only felt... It seems she's hurting you. I meant well.
3: People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Of course... I've suggested it myself But I hate to even think about it She needs me It's not as if she were a A maniac A raving thing She just goes A little mad sometimes We all go a little mad sometimes Haven't you?
5: It's definitely an interesting scene. It's it's the lengthiest amounts of dialogue we've had, I think maybe even with both characters. And it, it is really telling the way Norman doesn't really have a stance. Like, he is very much moving to line up with her. And for me, my read on that at least maybe one of the last times was he didn't want to make her too uncomfortable because she was uncomfortable at points, but never uncomfortable enough to be like, I'm standing up and walking out of here and I'm done. I'm done with this. And it's interesting. It's, it, it's very deliberate and it makes me feel like Norman is m- in that moment. Very aware, more aware than maybe in, in coming scenes, which is interesting and cool. He's a cool multifaceted character that you can easily boil down to some, oh, he's a crazy guy, but that's it's, it's much more than that. And I think the scene really shows that.
4: Well, yeah, there's a brilliance to it. The way that he wants her to call him by his first name, that he corrects her twice, I think, and says, you know, thank you, Norman, you know, like bringing up his name, he wants to be called Norman. And the way that he does that thing of like, miss, and she fills in Crane. And it's just like, Miriam, you just screwed up you just said the wrong name but yet you are now so comfortable with norman that you're fine saying your real last name not even thinking about it you don't realize that you just fucked up
5: yeah there is a real spider and fly to that if you want to look at it as 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 norman kind of trying to trap her and make and make her feel okay to stay there but he is he is setting a really nice table for her and kind of making her drop her guard she feels comfortable enough to reassess what she's done and i, I again really sad knowing what's gonna come up uh, because norman for me at least is super likable like really likable really charming definitely weird um a little off-putting but i'm rooting for him like be a good guy don't <laughs> don't don't do awful things but um yeah so watching it when you know how everything plays out it Their back and forth is really charming in a way, and it's sad that that it ends the way it does.
4: Well, yeah, you said that he sets a good table for her, and I love that he's like, oh, I was going to eat, you know, and then brings her food and then says, oh, I wasn't hungry. And it's like, well, okay, that's a lie.
5: There's that spider and fly thing. Like, he's luring her in. He's like, it's no trouble because I was going to do it anyways. Oh, actually, I'm just going to sit here and watch you eat a sandwich now, (laughs) which is kind of weird and off-putting.
4: You know, he's about to bring the food into her room. We as the audience see the bed in there and know that he can't say the word mattress. And I think perhaps it's because mattress sounds a lot like matricide. And then says like, oh, let's go into the office. And then immediately, you know, eating in an office is too officious. Let's go back into my parlor. And that's when she gets to see all of the birds that he has there. We've already had some inside of the outer office, but then seeing just... My God, what an amazing gothic set this is with all of these birds, these old paintings that we have, you know, the artwork itself having so many meanings to it as well. Even having pictures of birds, not to mention, you know, pictures of rape basically on the wall. I mean, it's just so much. And then each one of those angle shifts that I was talking about before, the camera shifts, makes those birds into almost different configurations the way that he is Put with the birds and juxtaposed against them, he becomes this weird bird of prey waiting for her. And the way that he talks about birds being very passive, and it's just like, okay, yeah, his mother is the most passive object that there possibly can be since she's stuffed like one of those birds, but him there with that, I think it's an owl over the corner, and the way he leans up, just that slight movement of him leaning up and talking to her just changes the whole perspective as well. And it just, oh my God, it is just brilliantly acted. And then all this, the trappings of that and then those camera positions just add so much to this.
5: Those have some of the most menacing bird shots in it. And I think about that the shot of that owl a lot. I, I don't I don't know why, it's just kind of seared itself into my brain. But there is this weird, like, passive pred- predator thing, because that owl is a vicious predator. And as unassuming and awkward as Norman appears, so is he. He is an efficient predator. I've read a lot of other stuff about, like, people reading into the birds and what the taxidermy means and stuff. But for me, yeah, it's as simple as just, like, you know, there are the, these delicate beautiful passive things that are that can also be vicious killers and i've just always been okay with that and been like yep that's all it is plus it looks cool
4: i never really thought about this before that so he has trouble he can't say the word mattress and then the other thing is he screws up and uses the word falsity when he should be using the word fallacy and i think that he can't say fallacy because it sounds too much like phallus
2: Mm,
5: yeah because there's that whole thing where he can't really acknowledge that the bathroom like that, that that's a bathroom. He's very interesting and that's cool. It's cool to have a movie with, with characters where you like, want more. I would like to know more about this character because I, I don't want to, you know, talk talk poorly of every modern movie because blanket statements are silly, but like we, we get so many prequels and so much in so many info dumps about characters and origin stories that it's cool to be like, I want to know more about you character. I know they made a television show about it and a prequel movie, but this movie is self-contained. It's nice to walk away going, I could have used a lot more about of all of those characters. It doesn't feel like that happens very often.
4: Yeah. I was just talking the other day about uh, the year without a Santa Claus. And that's always my example of like the origin story and getting the whole like, Oh, well that's where he got that hat from. And that's where he has the beard and all these things. And it's like, I don't necessarily need that. Like, I'm fine with Star Wars A New Hope not filling in with three extra movies of how, you know, Anakin Skywalker got to be Darth Vader. I don't necessarily need that stuff. I don't necessarily need to watch Bates Motel. I didn't watch Bates Motel because the thing that I like is that there are contradicting statements inside of this movie talking about Norman's quote unquote origin story. Did he murder his mother? Did his mother murder her lover, and then kill herself. When was this? What happened to his father? His father died when he was five. How did that happen? Or did he die when he was five? And that's the thing, too, is that we have this very, very unreliable narrator, basically, or unreliable character when it comes to Norman, because at the end of the day, Norman isn't all there. And so when he tells us things, we don't know whether to believe this or not. So who knows really what's going on when it comes to that stuff? So I don't really need all of those answers. Now, I liked Psycho 4, and we'll talk more about the sequels later on, but that was an okay thing. I didn't need to see however many seasons of Bates Motel there was to fill in all those blanks. I just didn't necessarily need that.
5: I attempted to watch Bates Motel, and it didn't really check any boxes for me. So I I dipped out. I don't need to commit to multiple seasons of television for something that's not working for me. But yeah, I don't I it's like theoretically cool like oh cool, it's about young Norman now. I don't I don't really actually want that.
4: I kind of like the sequels where we get to see older Norman and see where he went from there even though they would try to like retcon stuff every single movie. <laughs>
5: I've never actually seen any of the of the sequels, but um, in preparation, I made sure I watched all the trailers for them, so I feel like I have a good base. I don't know if I ever want to see any of them, to be honest with
4: you. I actually liked 2 and 3 quite a bit, and I didn't mind 4, to be honest, so... Yeah, we're not going to go into those necessarily. I recorded a whole episode of I think it was Radio and I'll have links in the show notes where people can listen to that where we talked all about the sequels. But yeah, we're we're not going to have to go into all that stuff. So don't worry you didn't not do your homework.
5: I felt like I at least needed to know like What they were going, they were attempting to do. I feel like I've purposefully avoided them because I just there's this perfect little thing that exists, and I don't need anything else getting in there. Um, But I, I mean, I love Anthony Perkins, so there's that siren song of like, oh, you should watch something else with this character and this actor you like. I don't know, maybe one day.
4: This sequence too is so rife with great things, like you know the private traps. Speech that I talked about. I mean, just those kind of things. The whole, you know, we go, everyone goes a little mad sometimes. Line after line after line where just Joseph Stefano and Albert Hitchcock just really made this sing. Now I did go back and read the book and it's there. The pieces are there, but it's like they're not polished, you know, and things that really shine in this movie, things like You know, the character's name is Mary Crane. And they don't necessarily bring up the birds as much as they could. I mean, it's nice that we have the crane and being a bird type. But Mary versus Marion. And I always thought it was a nice thing that Marion and Norman are so close and that you can just do a little rearranging and it becomes I, Norma, instead of Marion. And Norma being Norman's mother's name. I never even noticed until watching it again the last couple times, how when Norman comes in at the very end, that he says, I am Norma Bates, when he's attacking Lila. I never heard that before.
5: I don't know if I have either, but I've definitely read stuff that have cited something like that.
4: It's such a disturbing moment. And the music is screaming at that point that it was just like, oh, he said something. What did he say? And again, you know, he's getting more and more information out of her. And when he, I I even like the whole thing when he first meets her and she's checking in and his hand is reaching over by like cabin three. And then when she says that she's from L.A., his hand moves over to cabin one, almost like. This woman from LA is going to be of loose morals, so I'm not going to have a problem peeping on her later on.
5: It's really interesting, and it does for me. It goes back to like this character, like how innocent is he, how aware is he? Because so many so many decisions seem seem conscious, at least during this period,
4: uh, which is cool. And I love the idea that he has done this so many times before that he has that very nice face shaped hole in the wall. <laughs>
5: yep. <laughs> It looked looked real comfortable.
4: looked very comfortable, you know, had it just hollowed out, and then we get those nice close-ups of his eye, and it just so reminds me of, you know, the voyeurism, of course, but then also reminds me of what we are as viewers of this movie, because it totally looks like he's there watching a peep show or watching a movie, the way that the light is being reflected onto his eyes. And it's just like, yep, we are voyeurs right there with you. We... Being whoever we are, um, I don't want to speak for you, but I think all of us are just as interested in seeing Janet Lee und- undressing on the other side of the wall as Norman is.
5: Well, yeah, and especially at that the the time too, it was very you know that was some risque stuff. I don't want to say that it's being judgmental, but there is isn't an, an air of that, like of like, look, he's doing it, but so are you. In 1960, that that might have had more implications than it does now, as we're not as you know, shocked by something like that. And and at least in like genre stuff, it's expected like, Oh yeah, we're going to see some nudity or we're going to see some scantily clad women. But um, yeah, here it, it's, it's definitely, I feel like, Oh yeah, we're, we're all here together, huh? Like <laughs> you're doing something's creepy, but so are we. Cause we've made it this far with you.
4: I mean, we've, we've already had rear window six years before this, where we are, implicated with L.B. Jeffries of watching all this stuff. And then, yeah, now I think I feel a little chided, like, look at what you are, audience. You are right there with Norman. But I don't feel too bad about it because, I don't know, it just feels like, yeah, we're the audience. We want to see exactly what Norman sees, too. And there are times where our view is kept away from us. You know, we don't know what Lila Crane looks at in Norman's room later on in that book. We can only assume that it's pornography, but we don't get that uh, insert shot. But those are times where it's just like, no, I want to see, and I want to see what she sees. I want to be there with her when she's exploring the house. But again, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but we have this whole thing leading up to, You know, one of the most famous sequences of all time, but the things that lead up to it are just so well paced. You know, I forget about Norman after he looks at Marion going back up to the house and the decisions that he's making. Does he go upstairs? Does he go into the kitchen? He hesitates to do that. And then, you know, again, going back to another old Hitchcock film with Rebecca. The way that the furniture and the doors and Rebecca were all oversized and the doorknobs being so high, looking at Norman in that house, he looks like a little boy, the way that he is framed in some of those shots.
2: Oh, for
5: sure. Definitely at the kitchen table. It bolsters that empathy and that, like, oh, he's just a poor little thing. But no, he, he's not because he could have put her in a different room and all, all of all of these things. It, it, it toys with your stance on the character, I think. And plus Anthony Perkins is just really charismatic and likable. So he's, these things are happening and and it's tough to rectify how much you blame him for it.
4: Well, and when you're hearing that shrewish woman whose voice projects all the way down from the house, (laughs) all the way down into Marion's room, which he purposefully question mark raises that window when he First takes her in there, almost as if I'm about to put on a show for you. So here, let me raise the curtain. Now you can hear it when we have this uh, little tête-à-tête later on. But again, you know, that's not something I picked up on until recently, as far as the way that he sets the stage for her.
5: Simple story, deliberate choices. And I think moving into the shower scene, I did... Take a look at that documentary, which I had been meaning to watch. And you can say what the name is because it's just numbers because it's about cuts and stuff. I don't know what it's called. 7856.
4: 7852. Oh, You're so, so close.
5: close. I had wanted to I had wanted to watch it, and this really was motivation to do so. That documentary documentary is amazing. I will fangirl over it. It was so entertaining and so interesting. It is amazing how like you said about like the the gold mine, this is a this scene is a gold mine. The shower scene is a gold mine, and people can talk about it forever. And I don't think I will ever get bored of it.
4: How does ninety minutes pass so quickly?
5: It zipped by, and by the time it ended, I was like, oh, I was hoping they'd talk a little bit more about like this thing, or maybe go a couple scenes ahead and and show how that tied back. I I wanted more of it. It was really interesting. So that's a high recommend to that documentary.
4: Yeah, I couldn't believe when it was over. I was like, "Wait a second. It, how long is this thing?" And when I, you know, clicked the the pause and I saw that it was 90 minutes long, I was like, "You got to be kidding me. There's no way I just sat here for 90 minutes."
5: Yeah, it's very entertaining and and they bring up things in that documentary about the shower scene that I don't know if I had realized or known or or noticed. And and it's interesting. It's cool to still at this point get like hot takes on something that's
4: this old. Luckily, it's not coming from like a bunch of yahoos this isn't uh <laughs> this isn't room 237 you know we're not hearing from like conspiracy theorists we're hearing from richard stanley we're hearing from uh guillermo del toro you know we're hearing from people who actually know their shit we're hearing from well known editors we're hearing from people who have a stake in this i mean we could talk about um you know, a- Danny Elfman having a, a large role in this, Jamie Lee Curtis. I mm-hmm. mean, there's so many people who have skin in this game in some way, and to hear their quote unquote expert opinion makes so much more of a difference than hearing somebody who's just like, "Oh, look at that poster back there; it looks like a Minotaur."
5: For sure, I really enjoyed the editor's takes on it. I thought that was really interesting and made me look at it in, in, in a more certain scenes in a more critical way and certain cuts as like, Oh, how deliberate that was. And um, because every, you know, there's everybody, I would think a lot of people know the whole idea. People thought that she was getting stabbed into in the shower and she's not, you never see a knife enter hers. Like, so all that stuff, of course I know. And so it was, it was shot and cut deliberately to, for that effect. But then there's just other things about, you know, the shower and where the wall's bare and where she is on the wall. And when it, when it decides to cut to disorient us here, I was like, this is fucking amazing. (laughs) I could, I could hear them talk about every scene in this movie like this. Well,
4: and how fun was it? I can't remember the other two guys that, that are there with Elijah Wood, but just watching them watch the scene and their legitimate reactions, even though, you know, those guys have seen that scene a bunch of times, but just getting that, that viewer reaction, immediate viewer reaction. I think Richard Stanley is another one that you can tell he's actually watching the scenes as it's, as it's unfolding and getting his immediate response to that is just fantastic.
5: Oh yeah. It made me want to watch it again immediately to experience that too, because it, it's one of those, I feel, I feel like Psycho is one of those movies that if you were to turn on one of those turn on the TV, no matter where it is, you kind of get trapped in it again. Like, Oh, I'll just look at it for a minute. And then you end up watching the whole thing. And that's how that documentary made me feel. Like it, it felt like they teased me and showed me a little bit of it, and now I want to sit and watch the rest of it.
4: Yeah, I want to sit there and watch that movie with all of those people and their reactions to it. Give me the entire film. Second, like the whole thing would probably be like eight hours long, but I kind of don't care.
5: It was. It was very watchable. It went very fast. It never felt like anybody was condescending to the viewer or. It was really an approachable documentary, which I imagine might be difficult because you're talking about such a specific, specialized, tiny piece of, of, a, of a movie.
4: And they barely scratch the surface when they start talking about the movies that have used that in things. You know, of course, you talked about De Palma earlier. De Palma was heavily influenced by, by that, but they don't even talk about, like, Phantom of the Paradise having that in there. I was just watching a movie... I think it was called X-rated, and it was a it was a documentary about X-rated films and recommendations of X-rated films. And there was a shower parody in there with somebody bringing in roses to somebody. It was just like, my God, this is everywhere. You know, you could make a movie, and I'm surprised that somebody hasn't done this. That probably already is one. There's probably a supercut out on Vimeo somewhere of parodies of the shower scene.
5: It's. Part of the culture, and I think somebody in the documentary, it might have been one of the other guys with Elijah Wood, that says something about like my my kid knows that eh, 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 psycho stab thing, but doesn't know where it's from. It's just like ingrained, um, and and that's interesting that it's it's become so permeated in in pop culture that it's its own reference and that it gets that it's like a shorthand for something.
4: Yeah, and where does that come from? How has that entered into, you know, the, the I don't want to get too Jungian or anything, but how has that gone into our collective unconscious, you know? And I'm curious, like, if I were to go over to Korea or something and did that noise and that hand motion of stabbing, would somebody pick up on that? Or is that exclusively a Western thing? Or how far has that gone? Because obviously, there are slasher films coming out of South Korea, we know that there's some amazing films coming out of South Korea. How many of those can draw direct influences back to Psycho? Probably quite a few.
5: It's definitely interesting, and and to have it stated so plainly, like, "Oh yeah, my kid knows that, but doesn't know what it's from," is like, "Geez, yeah, we we really, this is really a thing now." And even people who have never seen this movie still know twists and plot points of this movie. It's interesting.
4: I watched this so many times before I ever sat down and watched Touch of Evil. So when I see Janet Lee in Touch of Evil at a hotel, roadside motel, with a crazy caretaker, this time being played by um, Dennis Weaver, I mean, I am just freaking out. Like, oh, my God, what is going to happen to (laughs) Janet Lee here at this hotel?
5: It really does um, make you concerned. And she's very... I don't know. I I, I I am very attached to her. So, yeah, i hyper-aware, like, what's going to happen? We, we shouldn't trust this situation. Be careful.
4: Yeah, I read a really nice article contrasting Touch of Evil with Psycho and just kind of making a case that Hitchcock must have taken some stuff from Touch of Evil. But then I think it's now pretty much accepted that he said, like, that opening – shot going into Phoenix, he was going to top the opening shot of Touch of Evil. So it's like, okay, yeah, for sure he saw this. But then when you see some of the candid angles that they were using in Touch of Evil, some of that, I mean, that's very gothic in a lot of ways, especially the end of that movie. And then the gothic influence on uh, Psycho is is highly evident. And then, yeah, just utilizing Janet Leigh, I don't think that that was a coincidence.
5: There's no way. Maybe at the time when things weren't so in our faces and accessible, maybe you could have been like, oh, this bears a slight resemblance. But now that we we have all the resources at our fingertips and can delve into it, of course, yeah, it's 100%. It's a real nice cousin of Touch of Evil. I, I would never say like, I've heard people say that Hitchcock ripped it off. But like, I don't think it goes that deep. That's great. If he found inspiration, even in the inspiration to just outdo it, why not?
4: The one thing I was very surprised about is that, you know, we will hear about missing scenes, missing sequences, missing shots, and people will just go fucking crazy about that stuff, especially on the Internet. And then finding out that there are a couple extra shots that were in the European TV versions of Psycho, I was really surprised that that isn't more known. And I will say that it doesn't necessarily add a whole lot more to things. There's like maybe a little bit more of Janet Lee taking off her bra. There's a couple extra shots of Norman's hands with blood on them after he's cleaning up the uh, the room after the murder. But you know, it isn't adding a whole lot to it. But I'm just surprised that that isn't something like you know now fully uncut and just having like people clamoring for oh, I need to see the whole thing because people just get freaking crazy about stuff
5: they do and again thanks internet you, like you where you can see the breakdowns of when it, where it's different so that's that's all i need really that's cool if, if it was like huge chunks of, like, dialogue and exposition. I might be foaming at the mouth to get my hands on that a little bit, too. Yeah, it is his extensive coverage on his hands, it seemed like, when I was looking at it, which, again, is cool. And it's very much like him sitting with this thing that he's done. But I don't, yeah, it doesn't really alter the way the movie plays when it's removed.
4: Some people call Norman Bates the hamlet of, you know, horror films. And, to me, and I think Anthony Perkins was definitely playing this up that he was being more the Lady Macbeth of it, and the whole idea of the blood on his hands and washing out the blood in the sink and everything was very much, you know, an out spot kind of a thing.
5: That really plays up with my empathy for the character too. I know I shouldn't feel for him, but but I do because he's done this thing. But like I. How, how much of it was he in control of? And is he okay? Which is interesting. And that could be just me bringing stuff to the table and <laughs> feeling, feeling bad
4: for people. Even when I know that Norman just murdered this woman, I still feel empathy for him, which is crazy. And then there's that moment that just pushes me over the edge, which is him with the car and pushing the car into the swamp. And the moment that that car stops and you're just like, oh, my God, no. The car has to keep going. It has to sink into the swamp. That's the moment that just clinches the whole thing for me. Is I have now completely switched my main protagonist from Marie Samuels, Marion Crane, to Norman Bates.
5: Oh yeah, that does it. It flips right then because, and it's like I didn't betray Marion. I don't. I don't think I betrayed Marion. But you're very, very aligned with her. You're in her face while she's driving that car. You have to sit with her for so long. And then you're just so willing to, oh boy, I hope he doesn't get caught. Play it cool, Norman. There's a cop talking to you. Again, masterfully done
4: when you feel so bad when Arbogast goes out there and starts kind of berating him and tricking him and doing almost the same thing that Norman did to Marion now Arbogast is doing to him and making him backtrack on things, making him correct himself when he says, we had a couple out here last week and it's like, oh, see, you said that nobody had been here for months and just the way that he gets that information, you feel like Arbogast is a bully not doing his job and not, you know, we're trying to say like, no, no, Norman, correct yourself. He just, he's going to get you. He's going to get you. And it's just like, no. And I think that there's a couple of things going on there. One of them is the way that Arbogast is introduced with that incredible close-up of him walking into Sam's hardware store and just that knowing smirk on his face. I love Martin Balsam and I think the man can do no wrong. And when he comes into the movie, it just, everything becomes the Arbogast show for me for a little while. And him just talking down to Lila and to Sam and that whole, like, you know, if, uh, if I did a little bit more research, maybe I'd believe you. I just, I love him and his attitude. But at the same time, when he's talking to Norman, it's just like, no, 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 I want to protect my little Norman. I don't want this meat old Arbogast coming in here and doing anything to him.
5: Yeah, for sure. He comes off like a real bully uh, and a blowhard. And I do like the character quite a bit, but he's not a likable character, and we have a likable character, so of course we're going to remain aligned with this person, even if maybe he's done some questionable (laughs) things.
4: I love when Norman says that he wasn't uh, fooled, that he's not capable of being fooled, not even by a woman. And I find that line to be so great and so telling, because this whole idea of women purposefully fooling men, because we've gotten that all the way from the beginning. Marion fooling her boss, fooling Cassidy, fooling even poor old Pat Hitchcock by saying that she's got a headache and taking off and taking the money. We constantly have women fooling men. And I think the one of Norman's biggest foibles is the way that he feels betrayed by his mother, the way that his mother is quote unquote using him. So his whole line of like, I can't be, I'm not capable of being fooled by a woman. And then the way again, that that line comes back at the end with Simon Oakland and how he's like, oh, I got the whole story, all right, but I got it from the mother half of Norman. I'm just like, but are you capable of being fooled by a woman? Because I think you were just fooled by a woman maybe being in the form of a man or by a man who is speaking with a woman's voice.
5: It's a very prideful statement from Norman that kind of, is always – hit my ear strange because it it doesn't fit with a lot of the other um a lot of his other dialogue uh it's it is very boastful and prideful and you're like whoa hey calm down buddy so so it sticks out but like in a really interesting way like it makes you want to think like well what else does that mean like what what is he attaching to this now yeah it's really it's really interesting and it's one of my favorite lines because it sticks out so much
4: was his mother trying to fool him, and that's why he had to murder her? Maybe. Yeah, there's so many interpretations of that.
5: It's super loaded. It's a really loaded comment. Like, what are you talking about? That's what I want. Like, na- make your hour-long television drama about that. What was he talking about there?
3: Let's just say, for the uh, just for the sake of argument, that she wanted you to uh, gallantly protect her. You'd know that you were being used. That you you wouldn't be made a fool of, would you? But I'm not a fool. Well, and, and I'm not capable of being fooled, and I'm not even by a woman.
4: Well, this is not a slur on your manhood, I'm uh, sorry. Let's put it
3: this way, she might have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother.
4: We talked about how there's this real clear division in this movie, the way that we have the first half of Marion, the introduction of Norman, and really I think it's right around the time that the car sinks and then we get Lila coming into the hardware store. That's our, our midway break. And... It can be jarring, you know. I think of other movies like Full Metal Jacket, where you have that switch from Paris Island to Vietnam, and the way that that is kind of jarring. Some people take that; some people don't. I personally, I will watch the first half of Full Metal Jacket any time. The second half of the movie is not necessarily as interesting to me. You know, I have the idea of. Private Pyle was kind of reincarnated as Animal Mother from the worst soldier in the world to the quote unquote best soldier in the world. Someone who has no feelings in the second half of the movie. Animal Mother is just a soldier and there's no person underneath that. Whereas Pyle was such a person and not enough soldier. And we, of course we do have, you know, Joker and Dallas kind of carrying us through the entire movie, kind of like Sam is carrying us through the movie, but you know it's interesting that we have this idea of this shift, this these two halves of this one film, all the way back in 1960, and that it managed to play. I think there was there was some question as to whether it would. You know, there was talk about actually splitting this into two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I think was absolutely impossible with the level of violence. But that there is this idea of this could be split into two pieces.
5: And I get that, but I think that there's enough, uh, there are enough themes in that front-loading of, well, I mentioned my sister, so you, we, we know she has a good relationship with her sister, or at least a relationship with her. There's still Sam, and now, and, I mean, we, and we have Norman. We have this terrible thing that's happened and we have the person who did it. So I think there's enough to carry you through. It's not such a jarring start. Now here's a setting that you've never heard of and characters you've never met. Now jump on board. That would have been too much. Like if we didn't know where Sam worked, if we didn't know how fond she was of Sam, like maybe that would have been a bridge too far if we suddenly showed up in a small town and in a back room of a store, like what is all who are these people, and what is this but they set it up it was there, like they had a deliberate conversation about these things, and then oh here, here they are
4: well, I think it helps too that we had the mystery in the first half of the movie, which was the forty thousand dollars, which is just basically thrown away by the second half of the movie. And then we still kind of have that mystery. Like that's the impetus for what Sam and Lila and Arbogast are working under is a girl with $40,000. Somebody always sees a girl with $40,000, but we, the audience, are working on another mystery. We're working on who is Norman Bates's mother? When is she going to get caught? Or if we've seen the movie before, when is Norman going to get caught? How is this going to play out? What is happening here? And just all of these things. And their mystery finally coalesces with our mystery once they go to the sheriff and they start to hear about Norman's mother and how she either killed herself or was killed i think they think that she killed herself and after she killed her lover and so they're finally hearing about mother but they still don't know that mother was involved in this murder they still don't think that mother was there at all and they think that she's some old woman up in the house and can't hurt a fly, as it were. So the, it's very interesting how we're in on something completely different than those other people are and just watching the machinations of them as they try to eventually find their way to the mystery that we really want to
0: know. As
5: a viewer, it's easy to forget that. So when you started talking to her, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. But Arbogast is really deliberate about like he's on the trail of the money And every time – and obviously, Marion's sister wants to find Marion. And it's kind of like when Arbogast is the money, the money. It's like you go, oh, no, stop it. you got to go figure out having a Marion. Hurry up. Catch up to me now.
4: That scene with uh, Martin Balsam and Anthony Perkins is just, again, another masterfully done scene. It really kind of puts a strong point on – just how clumsy John Gavin seems to be as an actor, because you get that great tete-a-tete between Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins, then you get that great scene of Martin Balsam and Anthony Perkins, and then you get later on the confrontation between John Gavin and Anthony Perkins, and it just doesn't play as well. I mean, it's a great scene still, but John Gavin is just outmatched, it feels like, when it comes to that but to have those lines, like Arbogast, when he says, uh, if it doesn't gel, it's not aspic. And it's just like, wow, okay, that's nice. And that shot of Norman, when he's leaning over and looking at the book, and you see his throat moving, and he's got like this chicken neck just kind of working on that candy corn he's always pecking at. It's just so many nice images, so many nice lines. And just the way those two actors play off one another, it's just like, again like this master class of acting
5: for sure and I don't think there's anything John Gavin's fine in this but when there's so much other stuff going on both the actor and the character of Sam they get kind of lost there's too many other awesome things happening in another movie it would probably would have been fine because I don't think like oh look at this guy he doesn't belong here but there's so much other stuff happening and you're the most you're, you're the least interesting thing in the room John Gavin. I'm sorry. I forget that you're in this movie half the time I watch it. I go like, oh, yeah, there he is.
4: I think it's nice the way that they're always playing those two shots of Norman on one side of the desk and the other person on the other side of the desk and the way that the other person is always reflected in the mirror. And when you get Gavin on one side and Perkins on the other, I know some people say like, oh, they're so physically similar. I don't necessarily see that all the way, but there are some similarities that they could be not necessarily mirror images of one another. I think, actually, I think Anthony Perkins is a lot more handsome than John Gavin, but more striking definitely. But it is good the way that they play off of one another on one side of the screen versus the other.
5: Uh, For sure. And I always viewed that, like the separation of the, of the counter. is kind of like a bartender behind the bar kind of thing from the, I'm from the service industry. So like when you're behind the bar, you have all the power, you have all the control. This is yours. But then you, you you lose it when you step out behind from behind it. So I always felt like he, it was kind of like an easy hat to put on. Like, I am now the proprietor of this business, sir. And I am in control and I know all the answers. And then he loses that confidence when he's not in that place. So, I, I yeah, I, I love it. It's it's really it's a really interesting dynamic.
4: Because they eventually go back into his parlor and talk some more. Is that right? There seems to be some interesting blocking going on in that conversation. There's definitely some power stuff happening because we know that Lila is now investigating the house. That's what helps elevate that scene to being better than it would be if it just played out. Those two men together is that we also are cross-cutting with Lila at the house getting that investigation getting that whole feeling of no don't go up there we don't know what's going to happen even though we should know i mean watching this you know you talked about watching it 14 times watching this the 14th time you should know that she's safe in the house because norman's down talking with sam but i still feel so tense every time she's up there
5: yeah it doesn't matter because it's it's it feels unsafe to her so we feel unsafe too and yeah, you like keep them busy, keep them busy and, and be quiet. But like, what are you being quiet to avoid? You could start banging cymbals in there and and nobody's going to come and chase you. But yeah, it's definitely it's the it's very it's cut very tensely. It's framed very, very intensely. And we know what happened to Arbogast in that house. So it's the house is not safe
4: and we've got that music. I mean, we can't say enough good things about the score and the way that that just will put you on edge. I mean, there's, of course, the famous violins of the stabbing, which we get at least three times. We get it in the shower, we get it with Arbogast, and then we get it again, coming right at the end, and when it looks like Lila is about to be slaughtered. But otherwise, you get that three-note motif running through there. You get those plucky strings just kind of bringing us along and just tightening everything so that you just don't feel like there's any room to breathe as she's going through there. And we get those crazy shots of the hand statue. We get that weird fucking bed. I've always wondered about that bed and that indent, that huge indent on that bed.
5: I think about that bed all the time yeah it's gross it 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 freaks me out it feels icky
4: it's like has her corpse been sitting on that bed for 10 years and she's only gone down to the fruit cellar twice now
5: either that that it's like corpse indent or like i always i think i just assume like that's where she died and he left her there for way too long and it made an indent any way you cut it it's gross And unsettling. Not, I'll, I'll, I'll elevate my comment. It's unsettling.
4: Yeah, because you get to see his room in his little boy room where he's just got that little bunk and he's got the stuffed animals on there. And it, oh, it is just, that is unpleasant as well. I've always wondered about the significance of Beethoven's Eroica on the record player. Like the first time I saw the movie and she holds up the record, I misread it as Erotica which I know it's not, but I'm always curious, am I supposed to think that word when I see erotica? You know, I wouldn't put it past uh, Hitchcock, but, you know, it has nothing to do with erotic anything. It was an ode or uh, originally dedicated to Napoleon. It has nothing to do with, with anything erotic. But when I saw that word the first time, I was just like, oh, okay. And then when she picks up that book and we're supposed to assume that it's pornography, it's like, okay, yeah, I guess it would make sense if he had a record called erotica.
5: The room is interesting, and then actually when you mentioned that, it made me remember something that I had read a long time ago, so I cannot tell you where I read it, but somebody had posited that the indent in the bed was Norman sleeping there in the same position, and I don't know if that's true, and that his other room is like a time capsule to who he was before he was also mother or whatever, but like, I don't know, it's really interesting. Like you could talk about, you could do a documentary about this, about that part again, where somebody explains to you the record and, you know, all the wallpaper or something like that.
4: Oh, God, the, the lamps, the mirrors again, and the jump scare when it yep. comes to the mirror. Yeah. And I'm curious, does he sleep as Mrs. Bates? It seems like he props her up in the window so she can have a nice view throughout the day because people are constantly seeing, quote unquote, the old woman in the window. But yeah, at night, does he take her down and put her in that bed? Does he curl up next to her? I mean, a son is a really poor substitute for a lover, but it seems like he was put into that position.
5: This movie can, in a lot of ways, um, give you way more questions than answers. If you, if you take the time to, to think about every bit of information you're presented with, you walk away wondering more than you were given, which I think is adds to its rewatchability.
4: Yeah. And then, you know, we have to talk about that psychiatrist scene, which I know for some people just is such a sour note at the end of this. It's necessary for us to get that explanation, especially in 1960. But it also, it gets undercut because the way that Simon Oakland plays it, again, he's this know-it-all and he's this know-it-all man. And the way that he says, like, I got the story from his mother. And then. After that, the way that Mrs. Bates, the voice that we hear in Norman's head, is saying, you know, it's it's terrible when a mother has to say the words to condemn her own son. And the way that she says, you know, he killed me. And it's just like, well, okay, how much of this are we now supposed to believe? Is this really Norman Bates' voice? Is this voice from beyond the grave. I mean, we've had spiritual possession being posited in things like vertigo. I don't think that there's an element necessarily the supernatural. Is this how Norman thinks that his mother thinks? I mean, there are just so many questions as far as what is this voice and her talking about Getting Norman locked up, and there's no way that I could have killed those girls, and all these kind of things. It's just, it's really interesting. And again, going back to that whole thing of, you know, I, a woman could never fool me, but yet a woman of some sort has fooled this psychiatrist for sure.
5: It, it is very interesting. And, and again, lends itself to the whole I walk away with more questions than answers because we talked about um, Marion having that internal dialogue that wasn't just her thoughts, but her. Playing out what she thought other people were saying. So is this Norman doing the same? Is he? This is what mother would say if she were alive or is he not in the driver's seat at all? I think that as explicit as that scene is, and as info dumpy and people, people you're, yeah, you're right. People don't like it because it's like, boy, why don't we just hit pause and give an entire explanation about some, some mental illness, but like, great. Got it. It was 1960. It's different times, but like as much as explicit as that scene is, you again, walk away, not really sure where you stand with, the characters, like who I don't know if I understand. Mother, when does Norman start and end? Is there a Norman anymore? Like it's 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 a lot. You're presented with a lot. I and I actually I really like it a lot. I think it's a good. Button on the end of it.
4: Well, even Norman when he is there thinking all of those thoughts, and he says, you know, they're probably watching me right now. Again, tying back to that voyeurism theme. But who is he playing that scene to? You know, it's he's pretty much alone in that room, but he's making that big show of that fly crawling on his hand, that he won't kill that fly. And it is very interesting that he, again, is doing a play to an audience, and that audience ultimately is us. But for him, he shouldn't necessarily know that we are there. He shouldn't know that we are looking at him.
5: It's eerie.
4: I don't know when it was that I first saw the skull that is superimposed on his face. And I've heard different things. I've heard that there were actually prints that didn't have the skull on there, but I can imagine it was one of those blink and you miss it kind of things the first few times mm-hmm. that I saw it, that skull being superimposed. And then I've always liked the reading that the chain to Marion's car basically comes right out of his heart. Like if you pause that shot, it looks like the the chain is pulling right from where his heart is. And it's such a nice, image. And God, talk about so many quick things and quick succession. Just the way that we have Simon Oakland giving the info dump. We've got Norman giving his little little speech at the end, then that really quick skull and then the dissolve to the car and it being pulled back up and then getting that, again, that three-note motif of Bernard Herrmann's music. And then boom, we are out of that movie.
5: It's very abrupt,
4: it leaves you with chills every single time
5: and unsettling and him looking directly at us is unsettling and us get then going back to the car, uh, especially if you are one of the people that watches this and is hoping the car goes down. This is a kind of a reframing of that where he does look very menacing. At this point, and like we're dragging this car up, and oh, this is where it all started. We're back here again. It leaves you feeling unsettled. It it, it is jarring and, and strange, but it's perfect. It's exactly a hundred percent where the movie has to end.
4: Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Alexandra Philippe, the director of Seventy Eight Fifty Two Hitchcock Shower Scene, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. You know the girl from that the yes the yes the I know the show exactly on that. God, I know exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. the, the hair was, it, but it was different. And she has the, the 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 lips. She has the lips with the. Okay, yeah, wait. The, she no. She was just okay. You've seen her in a million movies. You know, but the, who, but the one that, we're talking about the exact same person. Movies, 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 we don't always suck as bad as this, but listen to me, Chris Gore and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast.
5: You got questions? Sometimes we have the answers
6: just a few of the things famous people say about the After Movie Diner podcast. Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench, and when I'm not dusting the submarine, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast. You know, for the film reviews. Hello, I'm Eric Stoltz, and when I'm not taking Uncle to the pictures, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the interviews. Hello, I'm Lewis Gossett Jr., and when I'm not trampolining for peace, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the music. Hello, bernie torpin here and when i'm not undermining venezuela i'm listening to the after movie diner podcast for the guests hello i'm celia imry stump double and when i'm not wanking for tumors i'm listening to the after movie diner podcast for the comedy hi there i'm ali sheedy and when i'm not taking photographs of bricks i'm listening to the after movie diner podcast mostly for the pancakes Yes, that's right. The award-winning After Movie Diner podcast is all things to all people. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, and at www.aftermoviediner.com.
7: Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah, I don't know if
6: dudes is the correct nomenclature, though.
7: <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No, okay, uh, dudes is fine not nerds anything but movie nerds
8: well over here at the culture cast we talk about new movies overlooked gems classics and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week
7: yeah hot to trot comes to mind for sure
8: yeah hot to trot was a real mess so make sure to check out the
7: culture cast on itunes stitcher radio and wherever you get your podcasts i'm chris cooling from forgotten tv and you're listening to the projection booth the ultimate movie podcast you like classic movies how about classic tv over at forgotten tv i've covered everything from obscure saturday morning tv to short-lived shows like otherworld the phoenix the highwayman and cliffhangers you can find the show over at forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places i hope you'll join me soon at forgotten tv I once made a movie, it was
1: intended to cause people to scream and yell, but I was horrified to find that some people took it seriously.
6: It was actually the first time in the history of movies where it wasn't safe to be in the movie theater.
4: When a moment of violence is so suggestive, so unlike anything you've seen, Murder was now going to be an acceptable part of entertainment.
7: Psycho, you felt, could happen to you. This was the first movie that showed you can be naked, alone in a shower, and someone who is going to come in and just stab you. It had to be done impressionistically. The head, the feet,
1: a
3: hand.
4: He has broken the covenant of filmmaker and audience. And the audience cannot wait to see more. we spoke, I think Doc of the Dead was just coming out, and so I'm curious how you decided to make 7852 the project after that.
7: Well, you know, 7852 is really I think the culmination of a lifelong passion for Hitchcock. Um, You know, I think it's really the kind of film that I've always wanted to make, and I felt like in a way it was kind of the first film that felt like, okay, this is really starting to feel like, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing in a way. And we have a number of films now that we're, we're making at Exhibited Pictures that uh, will continue this kind of new tradition. I mean, not, I'm not saying that we're sort of moving away from pop culture and more into uh, something more cinephilic, uh, to use a word that I'm not sure really exists. This idea of deconstructing film, of, of a deep dive into cinema, Still, in a way that is really hopefully fun and, and engaging and and that um, is to be experienced on the big screen is is what I really am passionate about doing. Um, so it's a, I think it's a big shift in many ways from uh, from Duck of the Dead.
4: How did you approach doing this project? Because it sounds like you have a love for the film. Did you have anything in particular that you wanted you wanted to say? Because it's got to be odd for a documentary filmmaker because you have a voice in the project, but it's not your literal voice.
7: Yeah, and I think that's the way that I personally like to approach it because you know I I I always like to you know documentary filmmaking is really tricky in the sense that if you insert yourself a little too much into the narrative there's the risk of making a statement in a way that does not allow for the audience to fill in the blanks. And I like for the audience to be able to fill in the blanks. And, you know, I like to present information and to present, you know, evidence or ideas, and then ultimately have them decide, you know, is this something, for instance, that Hitchcock meant, or is this maybe something that was chance, you know, but um, so, you know, to approach a film about, a scene, you know, which, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to say that was actually the, you know, it's, it is the first feature ever made about a single scene. That was also the challenge is that, you know, people, you know, investors and, and, uh, you know, just, just, they, they, they couldn't figure out how we were going to do this, you know, and we had, we had made a few, you know, sizzle reels and, and, you know, people were always like, wow, this looks great. But, um, you know, come back to us when, uh, you know, when the film is done, which is not exactly an easy way to make a movie, you know, happen. So, uh, so, so that was the real challenge. Um, you know, it was, it was a very difficult film to make on that level because it's also a very ambitious film and, uh, you know, everything that we, sh- we shot is actually green screen um and so we had to actually you know build a set for the interior of the Bates Motel where every single interviewee is supposed to be and we had to shoot all the background plates and then composite everything and so it's um it was a very challenging film but ultimately I think we you know we pulled it off and um and it you know hopefully my passion for Hitchcock and for uh, you know Psycho and specifically the shower scene actually come, come across. I think it's an extraordinary two minutes of cinema, and it really contains pretty much everything you need to know, I think, about Hitchcock.
4: Well, you definitely succeeded because until you told me that, I had no idea that you green screened people in. I mean, I figured you put them in an interesting location, maybe built a set. I had no idea that you were green screening these people in.
7: <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny because when we premiered at um at Sundance in 2017, um I quickly realized, you know, I thought people were going to ask that question and in fact nobody asked us, you know, and 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 I quickly realized, oh, okay, people actually are they're buying the illusion, which in a way is great. I mean, that's what you want. You know, but that's that's the greatest compliment to uh, actually our post production uh, wizards at at Milkhouse, uh, Chad Hershberger and, and and James Duray, who made it work that way. But you also kind of wanted, you know, people to know that well, actually, we had a, to do a lot of work to make this uh, uh, believable, because you know, we actually shot the exteriors at. Um, you know, at the Bates Motel on the Universal lot, um, you know, with the rain machines and, and all that stuff. Um, but, um, but you know, if you go to Universal and, and you you wander around the Bates Motel and you go inside the rooms, they're stripped. I mean, there's nothing inside. So, um, so yeah, we had no choice to complete the illusion to shoot everything green screen. So it was, it was you yeah, know, it was very complicated, very involved um, shoot. But then at, at the same time, you know, it's also, you know, to me, it was about really creating a world that rift on the, 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 motif of voyeurism, which is so prevalent in psycho. And, you know, this idea that all those people are at the Bates motel watching psycho and we're watching them as they're watching psycho, but they're also watching us, you know, the, so the whole idea of the circular gaze was, you know, what the film was all about.
4: How did you go about making your list of who you wanted to interview for this?
7: It's always an organic process. Uh, you know, finding the interviewees. I mean, of course, the first thing you want to do when you're approaching a topic like psycho is, you know, who's <laughs> who's alive. And uh, you know, uh, basically at that point there was, you know, just Marley Renfro, uh, the the body double, you know, Jetley's uh, body double, and. um, and then, of course, you know, uh, the obvious choices were Stephen Rebello, who had written the book Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho, Hitchcock experts, editors. You can't really make a film about the shower scene without talking about the art of editing. And and obviously, we were very blessed to have Walter Murch, who is the I, I think, you know, for me, he was sort of the holy grail, you know, of of uh, of of interviewees. And uh, he was extraordinary. Uh, he was beyond extraordinary. But also, you know, I wanted to have the perspective of uh, different generations of filmmakers, from Peter Bogdanovich to Guillermo del Toro to younger filmmakers like Eli Roth and, you know, Elijah Wood and his partners at uh, SpectreVision, Daniel Noah and Josh Waller, to to really make the argument that the shower scene remains uh, very much alive in our consciousness today and is still something that we talk about. And still very relevant to discuss today. And last but not least, um, it was very important for me to have a number of um, of women, obviously, in the film. I don't I don't see how you can possibly make a film about Hitchcock, much less about Psycho and the shower scene, without having a number of uh, you know women and 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 hear their perspective on it as well.
4: It's a great mix of people, just so many different perspectives. And pretty much every single person that came on screen, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that no, that t- makes total sense. I mean, the one that always sticks out for me is Danny Elfman, and that he you know did the, the rescore for the remake. And just how important Bernard Herrmann probably was to his life and how important music is to that scene, it all ties together.
7: Yeah, no, it was great to get um, to get Danny and, and obviously a, a perspective also on... Um you know, on the Gus Van Sant psycho, uh, which we also have with um, Amy Donaldson, who was the editor of that project. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we didn't get Gus himself. But, you know, it's it's a really fascinating, it's a fascinating film to me to to consider, because this idea of of cinema magic, you know, that you can't really recreate even in the hands of of a master like, like Gus Van Sant, you just can't replicate it. In a way, it's, it's refreshing. You know, I think if you could just take any masterpiece and remake it just as successfully, um,
4: I think it would take away some of the magic. So what were some of the things that you found out while you were making this movie?
7: Well, you know, without uh, giving it away, I think, um, to me, there were two particular areas that I really wanted to explore that, in fact, had never been uh, explored, and you know, one is the painting that uh, Norman Bates removes from the wall to watch uh, Marion Crane through his peephole. Um, which, you know, it's actually a painting that uh, Hitchcock talks about in the trailer, the extended six minute trailer to Psycho. And uh, there's a, a mystery behind that painting, so that's something that um, was a wonderful journey of discovery. This picture
6: has great significance.
7: And then also um, the infamous cassava melon, which is a melon, a very particular kind of melon that um, Hitchcock used to create the sound of the stabbing. And, you know, everybody, well, every every Hitchcock fan will, will know that, uh, uh, you know, Hitchcock chose that particular melon for the sound. Um, but, uh, you know, we actually went really deep and... And tried and figure out why the cassava, as opposed to any other kind of melon, and uh, ended up ordering 27 different varieties of melons in season and stabbing them all and recording them and sending the sound files to Gary Reitstrom, who, you know, won seven Academy Awards for, for sound and shannon mills at uh skywalker sound and then interviewed them about that so there are certainly some surprises i think for even for really hardcore uh you know film nerds uh there are some some discoveries uh, to be made about the shower scene
4: so obviously so much of this movie speaks about editing and i'm curious as far as how the edit for the project actually went when it came to putting it together
7: well you know i, I work very closely with um Chad Hershberger, my editor, who um, did People vs. George Lucas, he did Duck of the Dead, uh, he did this, you know, 1752, and some of the films that we've got coming up. Um, uh, but my process is to to write a script. You know, I, I uh, I'm a big believer in in you know structuring the film and and you know uh, really working on the story arc and um, and it's usually way too long, but we start that way. And so I'll send him the script and you know the first step is, you know, I, I always ask him just cut it according to the script and then we'll we'll see what works and what doesn't work and and uh you know and then at that point I'll start coming into the edit room and we'll we'll have at it for you know for, for a week and then I'll leave him alone for a while and then I come back in and we start refining and and um you know so it's really a a, a process of, of working together, letting it go, working together again. And then eventually, you know, it's at the point where, you know, we start refining and I can be, you know, I can be in Korea and he can be in Denver and, you know, we can still work together on on refining, you know, notes. But it's, I think it still has, a, you know, the trademark sort of fast editing that, you know, that we're known for, you know, that you'll see in People versus George that you see in, in Duck of the Dead and and uh, future films.
4: You're talking about how difficult selling the idea was before you made it and doing the trailers did you have to finally wrap this put it together put a bow on it and then people were interested in it
7: well I think the moment that the film was announced to premiere at Sundance you know uh, suddenly everybody was interested I mean it's you know it's, it's a silly thing to say but it's you know, it, it, it's the golden ticket in a way, you know, and, and, and I hate it in a way. I mean, I, I love Sundance. I just hate that, that people the distributors, you know, need that validation to see if your film is, is worthy, quote unquote, or, or not. And so, I mean, look, I'm, I'm very glad and it worked out beautifully and we sold the film really well. And it, you know, it was obviously very successful. Um, but you know, the, the, the film, you know, certainly could have used the help of, um, of other people earlier as well, you know? And so, uh, so I'm very thankful, you know, for, uh, you know, for Sundance to, to believe in the film enough to, I mean, it was very important to us, you know, like we, I mean, it's, we could have lost our shirt on this one. It was, uh, it was very difficult. It was very expensive. We had to put some of you know, our own money into it and, uh, and really pray that, uh, we'd get a big premiere like. Uh, uh, like Sundance so um you know we but i also you know in my gut i knew that this was a really special movie you know and and uh, and it was but you know I, there's so many movies being made out there you, you never know there's never any guarantee you know i mean there were what 14,000 films submitted to Sundance this year you know it's it's ridiculous amount of competition you know uh, all you can do is, is is hope
4: well how does it feel to have premiered 7852 at the 2017 Sundance and then now your next feature documentary is going to be premiering at the 2019 Sundance. Uh,
7: it's amazing. I mean, it's, you know, to just to 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 be there once is 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 amazing, you know. I mean, it's kind of it's one of the the ultimate dreams of, you know, of most filmmakers obviously. Um to to have two films there back to back, I am kind of speechless you know it's it's uh I, I i'm still sort of pinching and slapping myself you know going really um i'm a two-time sundance alum i guess i am but uh you know it's it's the result of just um you know obviously amazing hard hard work amazingly hard work and amazing team um you know uh exhibited pictures you know we've been together now for for a decade and we stuck together through through thick and thin and through the highs and the lows and and I feel like we we're making better and better films I mean I think memory I, I felt very deeply is uh is a major step forward from 1752 and and it was actually great to hear you know from the sentence programmers when I got the call that you know that's what they feel you know they all feel like it's it's a major step up so I think you know people who expect that you know, this is a film about the chessburster that is basically going to get the seventy-eight fifty-two treatment. Um, I think they're they're in for a few surprises. It's a very different film. It's essentially a, a you know a mythological uh, origin story about Alien, and it's really a film about Dan O'Bannon and H.R. Giger and their symbiotic relationship with Ridley Scott. You know, um, and it's a film about the collective unconscious, and it talks about much deeper issues about the experience of collectively watching movies and how certain movies uh, resonate on the level of myth, of collective myth, of collective dreams, and what does that mean for us as a, as a culture and why it's important to us as, as a culture.
4: Yeah, When I first heard that a movie about Alien was your next project, I was trying to think, how is he going from psycho to alien other than them being these two really landmark horror films, though you could say alien is horror sci-fi but now when i think about it in that way it makes total sense that you're moving from one to the next
7: <laughs> yeah and then the one after that is uh, the exorcist so it's it's an evolution it's an interesting evolution
4: <laughs> well alexander congratulations on memory the origin of alien being at sundance 2019 i look forward to to seeing it I look forward to hearing the news from the festival unfortunately I don't think I'll be in Park City this year but yeah that that, that is fantastic
7: well thank you and you know I, I, I definitely hope we stay in touch and um, you know hopefully we'll uh, be able to be in the same city very soon and uh, I'd love to share the film with you I mean if you get a chance to watch it on the big screen I think it's it's much better that way
0: Murder?
3: friend is his mother
4: Right, we are back and we're talking about Psycho. We've mentioned before what a part of the cultural fabric the film has become since 1960. That said, it's no surprise that the film has had a lot of follow-ups, remakes, rip-offs, and documentaries about it. So yeah, we talked a little bit about 7852. I don't know if there's a whole lot more to say other than watch this movie and I could sit there. This is one of those documentaries I could watch repeatedly and get more out of each, each time.
5: I really thought it was going to be a slog just because of what you're talking about and and how, how can you drag this out over this period of time. But it's just there's so much to talk about because they talk to editors and composers and filmmakers and and hearing everybody's take is is super interesting. So, yes, I will revisit this and I'm really glad I finally watched it.
4: Did you get a chance to see Hitchcock, the film about Kind of about the making of the movie with uh, Anthony Hopkins?
5: I have seen it. I did not resee see it. I do not like it.
4: I can't say that I was a big fan either.
5: My short answers. I don't know. I, I can't sum it up why I didn't like it. I don't really remember. But I it left a really bad taste in my mouth. And I don't care to revisit it. This is also a subject that I'm kind of precious about. And I will be the first to admit it. I have a Hitchcock tattoo. Like I'm, I'm very... This is a very serious subject for me. So when I feel like something's not being done in a way that I like, I I can be very dismissive of it. So it might have been good. Who knows?
4: I don't think that it was good. I don't think it was. I think certain people do some interesting turns. And I think James Darcy really does a good job of being Anthony Perkins. But I don't think that we get nearly enough of him. I was surprised that I could actually buy Scarlett Johansson as Janet Lee, though I really objected to the way that her character is introduced by this big shot of her ass. And it's just like, wow, okay, are we going to sexualize her much?
5: If I remember correctly, because I haven't seen it since it was in theaters. This movie takes a stance And I get that we're coming We're at a point already, I think it's 2012 Where, like, yes, we know Maybe Hitchcock wasn't awesome We know at this point Maybe his relationships with women Weren't appropriate um, We have what Tippi Hedren has said All of these things are things that exist But the movie seems to take this stance Where, like, oh, well, this is just This kind of guy he was So we're gonna we're gonna objectify women but Movie, you don't have to do that You could have taken a neutral stance.
4: Yeah. And it just seems all over the place as far as like having, I mean, I love Michael Wincott, but when he shows up as Ed Gein and just him kind of being a ghostly figure to Hitchcock and telling him that Alma's having an affair with, uh, you know, this other screenwriter and stuff, it's just like, Okay, this really isn't doing it for me. Why is Ed Gein showing up here? The way that they kind of portray Hitchcock as Norman Bates sometimes it's just yeah. I mean, yeah, it was the same year as The Girl, the movie about the making of uh The Birds and so yeah, we are we're, we're well on the other side of the the dark side of genius um uh, book. But yeah, this um it really didn't do well for me and seeing Anthony Hopkins kind of prance around in his fat suit. I was just like, I, I wanted to have a fight between him and his fat suit versus Gary Oldman and his Winston Churchill fat suit.
5: It was distracting, right? Like it was a distracting level of, of makeup I'm looking at I'm clicking through pictures now to refresh Um, but like it's all right there I was so excited for this movie I was like oh Tony Collette come on Jessica Biel yes we're doing it Hitchcock movie let's do it and then I was so
2: disappointed
4: yeah and the weird relationship that he had with Vera Miles is kind of there but really isn't and then having him peep on Vera Miles or the Jessica Beale character I was just like what are you doing I mean you're basically making him into Norman Bates which I felt was a really bad thing to do
5: it was a strange angle to take and not what I expected like I felt I feel like this movie had an agenda and it wasn't one that I was particularly interested in
4: so I don't want to do it but we need to talk a little bit about the remake
5: <laughs> I don't want to do it either. <laughs> But okay, let's do
4: it. I had problems with this movie from the opening shot. I went to see this movie when it opened in theaters, talking about Gus Van Zandt's remake. Went to go see it when it opened. It opened on December 4th, 1998, which happened to be a Friday. Fast forward seven days, suddenly you're at Friday, December 11th. That date doesn't come up very often, and it would have been the absolute perfect date to open this film, but instead they opened it on the wrong day. And so I had problems all the way from the title cards, basically. Like, how, many, how did you screw this up? How did you screw up not opening this movie on December 11th, which was a Friday, and you opened it up a week earlier? Did you expect it to have so much traffic the next week that people would be like, oh, we get to go see this on December 11th? I think I might have been one of the only people in the entire theater that realized what was going on with that, but it angered me. And then what really angered me was when people kept saying this is a shot for shot remake. And it's not a shot for shot remake. You know, I just want to It's not. I want to nope. climb up on the tallest building in Phoenix and scream that. Just it is not a shot for shot remake.
5: Words mean things. Look, it's a very close remake. It's not a reimagining. Of any of an, in any in any way, but it's not shot-for-shot shot remake. It's not, and that is infuriating. I've actually watched these movies side by side. Literally, I've put two things up on the screen and watched them. Um, don't do it. It's a real huge waste of time. Uh, but but it's not shot-for-shot shot at all. And I have nothing even remotely nice to say about the remake. I can't think of one thing I like about it. Nope, not one. I paused and I thought about it.
4: Psycho 1998 was so heavily informed by Seven that it was crazy. Just the weird insert shots. And it's funny because I call those insert shots Rob Zombie insert shots. And then I went back and I watched the trailer. And I think Rob Zombie is actually in the trailer for a hot second.
2: This occurs at
3: approximately 37 seconds into the trailer.
5: Yeah, the insert shots are needless. I don't want to be mean. This movie lacks all charm, and I think that anytime it puts its own flourish or it takes it, it, its own point of view, it, it it takes away. It doesn't add. So it's like it's striking out over and over again. I watched it and I didn't like it, and I was like, you know what, Christine, watch it again, and I didn't like it <laughs> again. So it, it's not me. It's not what I'm bringing with me. I can't even watch it detached. It's like, is this a good movie? Because I don't. I don't. Have a problem with Anne Heche, but I don't feel like she's a good fit for the role. And she's not someone that I want to be in a car with for that length of time. Like, it doesn't, I don't feel connected at all. I don't, again, charmless. I feel like the, the whole thing lacks the, the ease and the charm that the original has.
4: Gus Van Zandt, being a gay director, I would think that he would treat gay characters a little bit better than he does, but he kind of makes them the villains a lot. And doesn't necessarily play with sexuality the right way. Like, he kind of plays up Norman's gayness. Like, I know there's a little bit of of the swing of the hips when it comes to Anthony Perkins going upstairs, but it really feels like they took Vince Vaughn, took his pants, threw him in some hot water, shrunk him up quite a bit to just hug his ass, and then the way that he sways his hips when he's going upstairs, I'm just like... Wow, can you get a little less subtle with this? Or for God's sakes, that masturbation? Like, I have watched the original Psycho with the sound all the way up. I don't hear Norman fapping it when he's watching Marion, but my God, could you make that sound more distracting when Vince Vaughn is just going to town, flogging himself as he's watching Anne Haitian dress?
5: It's strange. I get Like, we've already, we're in agreement, not shot for shot it's the stuff that's added doesn't seem to have any value. It makes it, it makes it worse than if it was just quote unquote shot for shot. Like, don't do that. Don't do that because now you're changing the nature of the characters, but you're still leaving so much of it the same. So it doesn't play well at all.
4: And Hey, I've had such a problem with her over the years. Um, not even like her personal stuff where she's done a lot of very questionable things. But her acting ability just is not there. Like when she gives the line about Alec the stamps, that has to be one of the worst deliveries I've ever heard. And it just falls so flat. And it's right there at the beginning. We talked about that scene between Sam and Marion at the beginning of the film and how important that is. And it sets up things. And then getting Anne Hache with her horrible delivery and Viggo Mortensen with his real kind of Texas twang going on. I'm not really sure what he's trying to do with his voice in this movie, the level of acting. I mean, you have freaking Wayne H Macy, Julianne Moore, all of these really top-notch actors in here, just not doing it whatsoever. Tell you what, when I send my ex wife her money, you can lick the stamps. I'll
3: lick the stamps.
5: Really flat. It's funny that you bring up the, I'll lick the stamps line. Cause I hate that line. But I also don't like when Anne Heche leaves that interaction and Vigo's still, I think, completely nude. And she's like, put your shoes on. Or, it doesn't play. It's not playing. And it's right at the beginning. Like, it's not cute. It's not funny. It's not winky. And now I have to sit with this for how much longer? How much longer is this movie going to be? And it, it really doesn't it doesn't set a nice table. <laughs> to bookend that statement. It really doesn't. It it's almost like strap in because this is only gonna get worse and it bums me out.
4: And Steven Soderbergh when he was quote unquote retired for a little while was doing some interesting editing experiments like he did a fan edit of 2001 he did something called the butcher's cut to heaven's gate he also did a version of psycho called psychos where he took the two movies and kind of cut them together and then would overlay certain scenes just to show some of the differences I don't think that that was necessarily 100% successful either. It was kind of more like something that I could see as an art installation rather than sitting down and watching it as a movie. I mean, there are so many shot-reverse-shot kind of things that you're doing. There's so many reaction shots that you have in the film. I mean, I'm just thinking of like the cop and the way that he is uh, insert into there. And he really could have done something even further than what Soderbergh did which was to make these characters interact between 1960 and 1998 a little bit more. He kind of does like scene by scene rather than shot by shot. And I think he could have really done some interesting things. Like, I think he might do Vince Vaughn looking at Janet Lee, but I'm not even sure if that's the case. And then the way that he'll overlay like the shower scenes the Arbogast murder, those kind of things. It's like, okay, well, that's kind of interesting, but I would almost rather do what you did, which is having two monitors or two screens and watching the same movies at the same time. And I would like to see what those differences were. This kind of does that, but then he's, kind of fast-forwarding fast entire scenes where we're just getting the 1960 version and then we'll just get the 1998 version and I would kind of like to see more of that side-by-side comparison and just kind of examine why was this done. The editor of the 1998 version is in 7852 and she talks about, you know, how it didn't cut together the same way. I'd kind of like to know why that was, you know, what was it about the differences that made it so that you couldn't cut the same thing together the same way. And, you know, the use of that last shot of Anne uh nude and the cuts on her back and stuff. It's just like, it didn't work for me. You know, there was, I i didn't like that shot when I saw it. It could be that I'm just not used to it, but I think the way that we end on Marion, the way that she is in that, that frozen state versus having her there like a slaughtered animal just didn't necessarily play for me in the 98 version versus the 1960 version.
5: The shower scene, so there's obviously differences in the shower scene, and f- other than the flashing to like the stormy skies which doesn't work for me, but the aggressive violence and nudity, that that what her falling over conveys is is really distracting because when you're kind of reimagining a a very iconic scene that someone has made a 90 minute documentary about something that iconic when you when you add something so different such an outlier such a sore thumb you you're going to leave a bad taste like it was just unnecessary and vulgar and it was like look I love vulgarity but it didn't work right there because so much of the shower scene was like the original. So then you go and you throw this in here and you're like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. This is not, this is not what's supposed to happen right here. There is a subtlety to that scene. And you just, you've said, yeah, you know what? No, not anymore. Here's her butt. And here's big cuts in her back. I'm like, I don't, I don't need that. So if you, if Gus Van Sant had been like, I'm going to redo psycho and just the whole movie was like that, maybe I wouldn't have minded as much, but so much of it is so faithful To that original, that when you add something that different, it's really obvious.
4: And even weird things like having all those birds in the basement with uh, Mrs. Bates's corpse and stuff—it's just like, well, why would he keep birds in the basement? That just seems really strange to me. And like, why did that have to be there? Yes, we know that there is a bird theme in this movie, but did you really find it that necessary to add? There was a whole thing of birds down in the basement where he's keeping his mother's corpse now. And it yeah, it was just really, really strange. My goodness.
5: The Soderbergh cut. So I had never seen that before. Um, and I was excited to watch it. So I watched it. As you mentioned, there's just huge. There's like a scene from uh, the 98 version. And then there's a scene from the original. And. Every time they would we would be watching a scene from the original it would change to a scene from the remake I would get disappointed because I forgot what I was watching for a second. I'd be like, "Oh, this is what we're doing? I forgot." All right. Well, it'll be it'll change over again soon.
4: I don't really need to see Julianne Moore as this angry lesbian too much longer.
5: <laughs> there were so many strange choices and I'm not like I have no problem with Gus Van Sam. Like there are some things he's done that I that I enjoy or whatever, but like the the choices on this were so strange. If you weren't going to make it shot for shot, if it wasn't going to be the same movie with different actors, then why keep it so close to the source material?
4: Yeah, and I know some people try to defend this, like, oh, it was just a uh, you know massive art thing. You know, somebody was going to redo it, and Gus said, "I'll do it, and I'll do it exactly the same." And it was just a big lark, and it's just like. I don't need to be involved in your art project. You know, you can do that, put it in a fucking gallery. I don't really need to see this.
5: Yeah. I mean, I, I would much, I would actually rather, I might be in the minority on this and it doesn't happen that often, but I would rather be like, Oh, this is your version of psycho or this is your interpretation or this is an update. Like what if these characters exist in in the late nineties, but it's not, it's none of those things. And that's my problem because you had, this amazing source material and all these resources, and this is what you did?
4: Well, we did get to see kind of an interesting update with, uh, Kater D. Lemon, uh, let's call it Fate, which was the Turkish musical version of Psycho that was done in color and, uh, much like, uh, Van Zandt Psycho. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> I don't expect that you sat there and watched this because I couldn't find a version with subtitles and, Frankly, the production value leaves a little bit to be desired.
5: Look, I think I I gleaned the the rough outline of this movie. There was a lot of walking, looking at things, walking with other people. I think a man had a hotel and he sexually assaulted people and murdered people there. I, I really think that the the similarities stop and end there with the whole. Hey, I this is my murder hotel.
4: There's a guy uh, Ed Glazer who runs this site called Neon Harbor and he does this thing called deja vu where he'll talk about the American originals and then he'll talk about remakes from different com- countries usually Turkish and Indian or occasionally he'll reach into you know uh Russia or Hong Kong Taiwan um you know Nollywood any any place really and he does a side by side of this movie let's call it fate and psycho it's really well done and he manages to cover it in like five minutes and i would say don't bother tracking down let's call it fate and just watch ed's version i'll have it in the show notes again because it's going to save you a lot of time a lot of frustration but i do have to say that i liked it better than vans and psycho
5: oh yeah i I actually paid attention to it and it didn't have it didn't have english subs i was like "Mm, yes this is interesting
4: it was really funny when they would play songs and they'd play them from the beginning and the guy would just be sitting there waiting for the lyrics to start and then would start to lip sync. It was like, yeah, okay, how do they do they do this a lot better in a lot of uh, Bollywood films that I've seen. I haven't seen a lot of Turkish musicals, so I don't know if they've kind of worked out the kinks, but yeah, this was uh it was a little awkward. He the way that he uh, was dressed too. It's not the Norman Bates character. I guess maybe it's the Sam Lumen's character, but the way that he's dressed, he kind of reminded me of the yellow man from uh, uh, blue velvet.
5: That blazer, and it's ever present that blazer. It just it does not go away. Um interesting styling choices for sure. I was glad I watched it. It was it was fun and I would like to take a look at that the shorter version that you mentioned. I think I might get something out of it.
4: So I want to also bring up the Psycho Legacy. I know, Christine, you haven't watched the Psycho sequels. The Psycho Legacy does a really good job of talking about the behind the scenes of the Psycho sequels and really walks you through it because it is an interesting franchise that – There was so much time between the first movie and the second movie. It wasn't like Halloween where the sequel comes out, what, like the next year or something, or Mm -hmm. the the Jason the Freddy movies. But it's, you know, it's this franchise that's had four movies plus a remake plus a TV version. Plus there was that weird Bates Motel pilot that Bud Court was in where I don't think he's norman bates but he's kind of norman bates-ish but it's almost like a framing device like a you know like a freddy's nightmare or, or the the um nightmare on elm street tv show you know it's like weird things would happen at the bates motel kind of like hotel the um uh, uh um david lynch pilot that he did you know you know you have all of these movies And they're tied together, especially tied together by Anthony Perkins, who does a fantastic job in every single darn one of them, but it really isn't thought of as a horror franchise. So it's interesting, and he does a good job of going through and talking about those movies and the common themes and just the way that some of these were put together. has some great behind-the-scenes interviews, so I highly recommend it. Um, Even if you just watch the first part about Psycho, he even has some good stuff in there. There's also the making of Psycho that I think is on the Blu-ray that Lawrence bosaro I can never remember how you pronounce the guy's name, but he did, which was interesting because I don't think Stephen Rebello had anything to do with that, even though he literally wrote the book on Psycho. So it's interesting, you get some different stories between what is in that documentary versus what Rebello would write about, like even when it comes to Norman's mother's voice, Norma's voice. And I kind of don't by Rebello's take that it's multiple people and they're blending the voices and doing all this kind of stuff.
5: Yeah, I have heard that. I forgot. I forgot I had heard of that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I know I've watched this the documentary on the Blu-ray before. I didn't uh, get a chance to get around to it for this purpose, but yeah, it's interesting how some of the stories and, and facts air quotes um, from that movie seem to have kind of morphed over time, especially depending on who's telling them. Everyone has their own take on on, on certain things, and it, it's definitely interesting. So, even though it leaves you not knowing what what version to trust, it's interesting to see how time changes people's perceptions of situations.
4: Yeah, because in the doc on the the making of Psycho, they say that it was Virginia Gregg who was in Wagon Train, Operation Petticoat, a bunch of stuff. It always sounds like one woman's voice to me, rather than it being a blending of multiple. I agree. Okay, good. Well, that's settled then. We have solved the mystery. <laughs> so
5: we did it, guys. Everyone, it's done. Stop talking about it.
4: I will just mention this real quick, too. I subscribed to, um I think it was only about maybe two and a half hours in total, a podcast called Inside Psycho, and they did a really interesting job. They did kind of what I wish that I could do more of on this podcast, which is, really paint a picture and almost make it more like old time radio. And he was giving like behind the scenes stuff and writing it out as if these things were a story jumping back and forth in time and using all these sound effects. That was interesting. The one thing that I really came away with from the inside psycho podcast was one of the questions that i always had about psycho looking at Ed Gein and just knowing how, much more gruesome Ed Gein was and how Gein's story influenced Psycho. And I never really thought of it until listening to this is just, this was 1959 or so when Gein was being talked about and written about in the newspapers and just how the newspapers would have had to have censored themselves. They would have been getting news through, the police and just that so many of the facts of the Gein case didn't necessarily come to light until years later. And I think that's why something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is more similar to Gein than Psycho was to Gein. And that's mostly just because of the time that that was in. So that helped solve kind of a mystery for me.
5: Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about it like that. It's, it's, it goes back to not just, um, what you could and couldn't really talk about but also the dissemination of that information like it's not instant anymore. We, there's it takes time for for stuff to come out and to get passed around.
4: Do you realize that we've talked this entire time and we haven't even mentioned a toilet one time? I feel really good.
5: I know we did it. I think that that was a personal goal and I'm glad that we achieved it.
4: <laughs> More than what we talked about being new ground, I think what we didn't talk about is something that we should really applaud ourselves for.
5: Skyrocketing to the top of the iTunes charts right now for our in-depth work on Psycho.
4: (laughs) And they didn't even talk about the toilet.
5: Good job. Good job, us.
4: All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Złe
7: duchy przybierają tyle postaci, że nie można się w tym połapać.
0: Jestem Gaspar Soares z Kadiksu. Nazywam się Moraredo.
8: Nazywam się Enina. Frasquita Salera. Jestem Don Pedro Velazquez! To się
0: chyba źle skończy. Nazywam się Alfons. Warden. To oczywiste. Wszystko się pokręciło. Musimy zatrzymać go tu za wszelką cenę. Była tutaj księga. Nigdy takiej księgi nie było. Jesteś skupiany. Nie lękam się nikogo. Kto przeczytał do końca, wydarzenia, które mają nastąpić, nie miałyby żadnego sensu. Frasquita opowiedziała swą historię Busquerosowi. Ten, Lopezowi Soares, który znów opowiedział ją seniorowi Avadoro.
7: I czasem jedna historia rodzi drugą, a z tej wysnuwa się trzecia.
2: Oszaleć można. <gry>
8: Należy ułożyć nowe kombinacje, wtedy całość stanie się jasna.
4: In case you can't speak Polish, we will be back next week with a discussion of the Saragossa Manuscript. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Christine Makepeace. Christine, what is the latest with you, ma'am?
5: I co-host a podcast um, called The Feminine Critique uh, with my friend Emily. And we talk about mostly genre movies, but sometimes other goofiness and uh, Hallmark Christmas movies. And you can uh, find us wherever you find podcasts. I also write books. So if you just look up my name on Amazon, you'll find my books and you can buy them. And that would make me happy.
4: Anything to make you happy.
5: Yeah, thank you. That's the goal here, right? That's why we're all here.
4: Well, thank you again Christine for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can listen to more about today's where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
1: I'm as hungry as can be Oh, Lordy, how I wish Mama, you could keep the baby quiet Cause my head's killing me I seen my ex last night Mama, at a dance at Miller's store She was with that Jackie White Mama, I killed them both And they're buried under Jenkins Sycamore Don't you think I'm psycho, Mama? You can pour me a cup If you think I'm psycho, Mama Better let them lock me up Don't hand the dog to me, Mama I might squeeze him too tight And I'm as nervous as can be, Mama But let me tell you about last night I woke up in Johnny's room, Mama Standing right by his bed With my hands near his throat Mama Wishing both of us was dead You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mama? I just killed Johnny's pup You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mama? You better let him lock me up You know the little girl next door, mama, I think her name is Betty Clark. Oh, don't tell me that she's dead, mama, why, I just seen her in the park. She was sitting on a bench, mama, thinking up a game to play. seems I was holding a wrench, mama Then my mind walked away You think I'm psycho, don't you, mama? Didn't mean to break your cup You think I'm psycho, don't you, mama? Mama, mama, why don't you get up? Say something to me, mama
0: Like one of his stuffed birds They know I can't even move a finger And I won't I'll just sit here and be quiet Just in case they do Suspect me They're probably watching me Well let them Let them see what kind of a person I am I'm not even gonna swat that fly I hope they are watching They'll see they'll see and they'll know and they'll say why she wouldn't even harm a fly.